Let's pray uh, as we come to uh, the Word this morning. Our Lord and our God, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that this morning that we have it before us. We thank You that we can open its pages, that we can read it in our own tongue, that we can hear it, and that we know that Your Spirit attends to it. And we would pray that blessing this morning, that as we see it, that as we hear it, that as we read it, Your Spirit would attend to it for our benefit and for Your glory. In Christ's name, amen. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, this is the holy and errant Word of God. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We came to the climax of the Gospel of John, the entire book, last week as Thomas appears uh, in a room with the rest of the disciples, and there in their midst, Jesus appears, the resurrected Jesus before him, and Thomas exclaims that great proclamation and confession of my Lord and my God. And Jesus receives his praise. He doesn't turn it away. He receives it, and then he goes one step further. He blesses Thomas, and he blesses those who would come after Thomas. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's speaking about people like us. In fact, anyone that would come after that apostolic generation, after Thomas and Peter and Paul that that did not see bodily, the resurrected Jesus. And John says here that Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, have have placed their faith in Jesus. But having said that, our, our faith is not a blind faith, the Christian faith, that kind of pie in the sky kind of faith, that wishing and hoping kind of faith. Though, as John says, we have not seen Him, we have faith that is absolutely grounded. And that is where he goes next in this book. Our faith is not based upon reason, but it is reasonable. That is, we don't believe in Christ because we've reasoned our way to Christ. We have proved Him to be true. We don't believe because we've reasoned our way to Him. If that's the case, then reason kind of sits in in a governor position over Christ and over faith. And really, reason is our God. No, reason is not the basis of our faith. That is not faith. But we have a very reasonable faith. And John helps us to see that even in this text. There are witnesses. There are witnesses to Christ. 
Witnesses that you and I can't easily dismiss. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Look at the train of thought here that that John is giving us. Jesus did many other signs. Signs that aren't recorded here. He did signs. and, And a lot of signs. Many signs. Manifold signs. But only some of them are written down. And they're written down so that you and I might believe. So that we might have faith. That He is truly the Son of God. That He is the Messiah. That is, they bear witness. So what we have in the Gospels is an abridged account of the life of Jesus. And you know this. You know that we don't have everything that He did or everything that He said. We don't even have many accounts at all of when He was a child. We have that one account in the Gospel of Luke where He is in the temple and He begins to teach others in the temple, but beyond that, there's not a whisper. We don't know if he had childhood friends. Uh, We don't know uh, when he first learned to read. We don't know if he learned carpentry at the foot of his father Joseph. We just don't know. We also don't know all of his teaching. We don't know every word that he uttered in teaching. Or every subject that he addressed. We don't know every sermon that he preached. We don't even know all the miracles he performed, as John says here. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Many. John will close this book with saying, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that isn't an exaggeration. He's the Son of God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything under the earth. Indeed, if you recorded everything that He had ever done, all the books in the world, and more would be required. Or as John says, not even the cosmos could contain them all. But what we have here, these miracles in the Gospels are recorded in an abridged format so that you might believe, so that I might believe. Why did Jesus do miracles? Because the miracles testified to who He was and who He is. They witness. They serve as a kind of of large signposts that are put throughout his life and throughout his ministry to say, this is who he is. This is the Son of God. Come in power. Look at what he can do. You see someone walk on water and you see someone raise people from the dead. It's reasonable to believe that who they say they are, they actually are. In Acts 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he makes this very point. He says to the Jews gathered there, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You men of Israel, you you saw these miracles. You saw the signs that he did, mighty signs. And no one in the text raises an objection because they saw them. And those miracles, Peter says, those miracles were God attesting to you who Jesus was. God's witnessing to you. Jesus is transcending the very laws of nature so that you might know that He is the very Son of God, the Christ who has all power. He is who He said He was. Changing water into wine, multiplying loaves of bread and fishes, walking on water, healing the blind and the lame and the mute and the deaf, raising dead bodies from the grave. All signs, witnesses, to tell you He is who He says He is. The Son of God. Come in power. When John the Baptist was wondering whether Jesus really was the Christ, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus. And they asked the question, they asked, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus doesn't immediately answer their question with words. No, he sets about healing people. He heals people of diseases and infirmities, and he casts out demons and unclean spirits. And then he says this to these disciples. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. The miracles Jesus performs in His earthly ministry, they aren't parlor tricks. They aren't meant to be entertainment. They are loud declarations from God that Jesus is the very Son of God who has all the power of God. God suspends the laws of nature so that you and I might know that Jesus is the Christ. But there's an even greater witness that's provided. Greater than walking on water, multiplying loaves of bread, healing the lame and the deaf. The loudest testimony that Jesus is the Son of God was not the voice from heaven when God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It wasn't that. As monumental as that moment was. The loudest testimony that Jesus is the Son of God was His being raised with power from the grave. And that's why John spends so much time on these accounts about Jesus after His resurrection from the grave and His appearances to people. And yet, what He gives us at the end of this Gospel is an abridged version as well. It's not all of His appearances. Peter can say at Pentecost in Acts 2 again to those gathered Jews, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he says most of them are still living, even while he's writing that letter. Hundreds, if not thousands, saw the resurrected body of Jesus. They saw him walk. They saw him talk. They even saw him eat. They touched him. He was there in the flesh. This was no hallucination. Not thousands. And these disciples, upon seeing the resurrected Christ, seeing Him bodily back from the grave, they yield their entire lives to Him. Men who were afraid to confess Him when He was being led off to trial now will give their lives to testify of Him before others. And they don't gain power. They don't gain wealth. They don't gain position. These men are decried as criminals and, and will be persecuted and they will die martyrs' deaths because of what they saw, because of whom they saw. His resurrection witnesses to who he said he was. Miracles witness and the resurrection witnesses, they are God giving witness of Himself by transcending the laws of nature. But here's the problem, right? Is that you and I will not see the miracles of Jesus like these disciples saw them. We will not see the resurrected body of Christ with our earthly eyes, the sight of heaven. You won't see it. No, but God provides these witnesses to us, as John is pointing out here in this written Word. In this Word. This living, God-breathed Word as a witness to you. As a witness to me. It testifies to us of who Jesus is the Old Testament, the New Testament. It testifies. There will be no more signs. As the writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Jesus is the final word. So if you're waiting to see some miracle before your eyes, to convince you, you will be waiting in vain. You're waiting to hear some kind of voice from heaven. Until you believe, you will be waiting in vain. Because God has chosen to speak to us in His Son. And He is the final word. And it's recorded here. Here. God appointed godly men to record the life and the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, His miracles, His teachings, His resurrection, and the Word testifies that bears witness to who He is, and this is an ironclad guarantee of truth. Imagine a man living in a city, uh, maybe like Chicago, that's doing with a lot of crime these days. 
This man had some kind of medical condition that prevented him from ever telling a lie. He could only speak truth to a fault. He always had to speak truth. Imagine how much in demand that man would be. Everybody knows that whatever he says is true. It's irrefutable. He, he can't get away from telling the truth. If you were doing some kind of negotiation, you would call him in so he could hear both sides and then he could testify. If there was some court case and he had seen what had happened on that street, he could walk into that courtroom and what he said would be true. And it would be convincing. It would reassure. We have something even better than a mere man's words. We have the very Word of God. God. It says, breathed out by God. As men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote the words of God. When you read this book, when you hear this book, you hear the voice of God. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you this morning. We gather to hear from Him. And it witnesses to us that Jesus is who He said He was. You say, but I don't know if this Bible is accurate. How do we know that all these years later these accounts are true? Well, God, again, in His magnificent grace, has even made it easy to believe in the reliability of these Scriptures. Again, not that reason causes our faith, but that our faith is quite reasonable. We have incredible manuscript evidence verifying that what you and I possess in these pages is identical to the original autograph. Think about history, and you think if you were trying to assess something and whether it is historically accurate, some manuscript that you have, whether it is actually what the original said, well, what historians do is that they use two metrics. They use the number of manuscripts that they have and how close those manuscripts are to the original to determine how, how accurate these are. So let me give you some examples from History, things that were written about the time of the New Testament, things that we accept as factual and true, Caesar's writings. The earliest copy we have is about 900 years after it was actually written. And we have 10 manuscripts. And in the history department at Michigan State University, it will be studied and treated as true history. Aristotle's writings studied in philosophy departments throughout the world. There are 1,400 years between his writing and the copies that we have. But we have 49 copies of his writings, 49 manuscripts. It's pretty good. It's most likely trustworthy. Homer and his Iliad, which most of us had to read in middle school. The time between the original autograph his writing, and the copies that we have is 500 years. Pretty close. And we have a whopping 643 manuscripts of the Iliad. 
and attests that what we have has to be pretty close to what was written. It's monumental for the ancient world. 500 years that close, 643 copies. But with the New Testament, we don't have 1,400 years. We don't have 900 years. We don't have even 500 years, but less than 100 years between the earliest manuscripts we have and when they were written. We don't have 10 copies. We don't have 49 copies or even that whopping 643 copies of the Iliad. We have 5,600 copies of the New Testament or parts of it. 5,600. And some within 100 years of its original writing. There's nothing like it in the ancient world. And a manuscript at this time could last anywhere from 75 to 500 years with scholars estimating that the average manuscript lasted about 150 years. That means that some of the earliest copies we possess could have been copied directly from the original autographs. And if they weren't copied directly from the original autographs, they were copied from the direct copy of the original autographs. That's what we have. It takes faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But it takes even more faith to ignore the witnesses and believe He wasn't. I was traveling for part of this week, uh, Confex, and John and Neil and I went down to a pastor's fellowship in Mississippi, and it was a lot of late nights, and so on the return trip home, I was planning on sleeping on the flight and trying to catch up with a couple of hours of sleep. Uh, but the Lord had other plans. Uh, we were flying that luxury airline, Spirit Airlines. And, you know, Spirit Airlines, you never know where you're going to seat until, get, uh, your seat's going to be until you're boarding the plane. And, and then the seats are like on top of each other. And I was providentially given the great gift of seeing the row of three seats and realizing that the Lord in His kind providence had given me the middle seat. And so on one side was Confex. I love Confex. Uh, there's nothing like two hours of sitting on top of each other to increase your fellowship with one another. Uh, but on the other side was a woman that when I was sitting down, I didn't quite know that uh, I was going to now have a two-hour conversation with this woman. As we sat down, uh, I said to her, so uh, are you traveling home? She said, yes, I am. I, I live outside Detroit. She gave me the name of the city. And I said, were you on vacation? She said, oh, yes, I was just in Fort Lauderdale soaking up the sun and the rays. And then she said, were you traveling on business? I said, yes, of a sort. She said, oh, well, what is it that you do? Aha, I have it easier than most of you. I said, well, I am a pastor, and I was just at a pastoral fellowship all week. And the door was opened. A pastor, huh? Yeah. 
We began to speak about the things of Christ. At one point in the conversation, she said to me, she said, I believe in God. It was clear that she wasn't a Christian as we were having this conversation, and I asked her why she believed in God. And she told me of how she had a grandmother that was very close to her, and this grandmother had become very old and had become senile. But her grandmother on her deathbed This young lady was there at her grandmother's deathbed, and there on her deathbed, she was crying next to her grandmother, and her grandmother opened her eyes, and she looked at her, and she said, don't worry about anything. I've seen God. And she said, that's why I believe in God. She said, my grandmother loves me and would never lie to me. Now, that's an incredible act of faith on her part. Here's a woman who believes the testimony of her grandmother because her grandmother loved her and would never lie despite the fact that she had confessed that her grandmother had gone senile. A Christian has no such wobbly foundation. God has spoken to us. He's spoken to us. She believed her grandmother because she loved her and she had spoken to her. Our foundation is much stronger. We have the Word of God. He's spoken to us and He cannot lie. It's not that He he won't lie. He can't lie. Truth is bound up with his very character, his person. It is an impossibility for him to lie. It would be like water ceasing to be wet. It just can't do it. God cannot lie. And this is his word. What he says to you. It's a very strong foundation. And I told my new friend this on the plane after she made that comment about her grandmother. She said to me, she said, I've never read the Bible. Would you read it to me? It's like asking a lion if he wants that rare steak for lunch. Friends, we have the witness of the miracles, the great witness of the resurrection, and we have the unshakable witness of the Word of God, a threefold witness of God to us that Jesus is who He said He was, the very Son of God, and as you believe that truth, you gain life, eternal life, everlasting life in His name. But I want you to see this to close out this little series, that the Christian life doesn't end with believing. It only begins with believing. 
That's why John finishes this book with a kind of afterword. You would think, well, Thomas has, has made this great confession. It's the climax. It is, look, this is the Lord. This is my Lord. This is my God. And John then reassures us, look, you're even more blessed if you believed and you haven't seen. And these things are written so that you might believe and might have eternal life. And you would think, there, close the book, John. But he doesn't. He fixes a whole other chapter. And afterward, at the very end with the Apostle Peter, you have Jesus restoring Peter and that threefold denial that Peter had made, and Jesus gives him a threefold kind of restoration, and he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And how is Peter to do that? He is to give them the Word of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you, you will feed my lambs. You'll testify of me. You'll give this word to them. It's the same in the little account right before that. I didn't read it this morning, but it is this picture of Peter and six other disciples, including the sons of Zebedee, John and James. They have gone out on the sea. It is the Sea of Galilee where Jesus first called them. The Sea of Tiberias is just another name for it. And that same sea that Jesus earlier in the Gospels when He had first come upon them and He had called out to them when they were on the sea and they were fishing and He said, I will make you fishers of men. And now it closes with the same idea. Here are the apostles. They're out on the sea, the same sea, and it's meant to, to create in yours and my mind a repicturing of Jesus' call to them that they are to be fishers of men. And they're out on the sea, and it says that they were out there all night, and they caught nothing. Have you noticed in the Gospels that even these fishermen, these talented, gifted, long-occupied fishermen, that they never catch anything apart from Jesus. Never. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we keep getting a sign of it. So they're out there. They've been out there all night. They're on the sea. And then Jesus is there on the beach, and he calls out to them, have you caught anything? No, nothing. We've caught nothing. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. And they throw their net into the water, and then there are more fish than they could possibly imagine. He even gives us the number 153. I don't know why the number 153. Been all kinds of speculation over the years about that. Who, ha who knows? 153 of them in this net. John immediately recognizes upon that miracle because it testifies. He recognizes that it's Jesus. It's the Lord, he screams, just like John. John knew Jesus better than anybody. And just like Peter, oh, lovable Peter. John says, it's Jesus, it's the Lord. Jesus, or Peter puts on his clothes and he jumps in the water and swims 100 yards to the beach and leaves the rest of them with 153 fish to drag in by themselves. And there on the beach, Jesus has already laid out fish. He has already prepared bread. It says He's already prepared a fire, and it's all sitting there ready for them. It's a very 
tangible sign to them that He's provided for them. And that He is with His disciples always, even to the very end of the age. As He sends them out on mission, He's with them. He'll provide for them. He will care for them. Even as they serve now as His witnesses, they are to be fishers of men. We are saved unto good works, and part of that work is that we are sent out as witnesses. God proclaims through our changed lives, our love, our communication of the gospel to others that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God, that others might have life in His name. That's what He does. As the minutes passed on that plane ride with this woman, we walked through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We walked through John 3. We walked through John 14 together. And as I was explaining these different texts to her and speaking to her about Christ and the things of Christ, she began to tell me her whole life story. She had a three-year-old daughter. She had a husband that she had been married to for two years. And she told me of her sins, and she told me of her husband's sins. She found out on her honeymoon that her husband was a heroin addict on her honeymoon. And after a few months of being angry with him and trying to convince him to stop, she decided to join in with him, and she became a heroin addict. Because, she said, he enjoyed it, and I wanted to keep him, and so I thought this is a way to keep him as my husband. And much of her story was a kind of searching and grasping at life like this, trying to hold on to a fragile life and find fulfillment in it. And she kept saying to me over and over while we were on the, on the plane, she said, I, I just want to find my purpose in life. I think everybody has a purpose. And if I could but find my purpose, then this life would be worth living. After I allowed her to say that probably four or five times, I looked her in the eye and I said, I know your purpose. She had, she had this mannerism of dropping her mouth open. She went. She said, you know my purpose? I said, I do. She said, well, tell me. Tell me what is my purpose? I said, it's the same as the purpose of that person there and that purpose there and that person there, and that person there. It's the same purpose. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That you might have life in His name and be a worshiper of Him and give Him glory. And then that the rest of your life is yielded to Him and you live a life of worship unto Him and you tell others about Him. That's your purpose. Have you noticed that each of the four Gospels ends with the charge of the disciples to be witnesses themselves? 
Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The original ending of Mark ends with the angel saying to the women at the tomb, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, meaning Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. Luke ends with Jesus appearing before the disciples and telling them that all that they saw had been written in the Scriptures, and he says, you are witnesses of these things. You're witnesses. And if you've experienced the miracle of Christ taking your heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh, if you have experienced that resurrection power of Christ in your life, then you were made a witness unto these things. And what does a witness do? A witness witnesses, testifies, points others to this Christ, who He is and what He has done. We have a mission before us. And that's why the gospel ends this way. That's why every gospel ends this way. We're witnesses of the great truth that all the world needs. And someone shared it with you. Someone shared it with me. Will you and I witness? Will we testify? Will we share? Listen, I know it is scary. Uh, I fail too often. And seldom is it as, as easy as that woman on the plane. Would you read the Bible to me? We are seek to fulfill our mission. We won't do it perfectly. We won't have all the answers. You don't need to because you're not going to reason anybody into the faith. Our job is just to cast the net, to sow the seed, to testify to what we know. And if you know Jesus, you know enough to share Jesus. You know enough. What if we all just this week, this week, just tried to share who our Lord is and what He has done with one person, all of us, one person. doesn't have to be eloquent. doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be profound. But just share with one person this week because you've been made a witness. And this is what witnesses do. Testify to who He is and what He has done. Thankful that the Lord has made our faith quite reasonable. I'm thankful that He has testified to us the miracles with resurrection, with the Word, and I am thankful that He sent saints before us to continue to testify of Him and put some in our lives to do so. And He's placed you in the lives of others to do the same. Let's pray together.
Lord our God, we are thankful that you are a God who reveals yourself. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself in the person of your Son, through the truth of your Word, by the power of the Spirit. And oh, we are thankful that you are a God who continues to work the miracle of conversion. That you take sinners with hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. And oh Lord, instead of a burden, may we find it to be the great blessing of our life. That you choose to use weak and frail vessels such as us to accomplish your eternal purposes. You didn't have to. You surely don't need to, and yet you give us that privilege. May we be witnesses of yours, testifiers of yours, sharing what we know, what we have seen, what we have experienced. To your glory and to your praise, in Christ's name we pray, amen.